In today's message, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. We're picking up at a midway point right in the story that introduced us to John the Baptist, one of the most interesting, compelling characters of the New Testament. And then, interestingly enough, his encounter with Jesus and what took place next. You know, we don't know a lot about John the Baptist. Scripture doesn't speak of him a great deal beyond just what we see in the first couple of chapters of the Gospels, in different Gospels. But I tell you, John the Baptist was a tough, he was a tough dude. I have no doubt he was a far tougher man than I am. And it's not just because he lived out in the wilderness and he wore a garment of camel hair and he lived off locusts. Those really aren't the decisive factors. Honestly, I think I could do that. What makes him such a tough guy, and you may not realize this if you've never been there, is that he baptized people in the Jordan and lots of them. When you read Mark's gospel account of the baptism of Jesus in chapter 1, it describes this vast number of people. All of Judea is coming out and Jerusalem's coming out. Now, we don't have a number attached to that, but it's a large number of people. And I can just picture John the baptizer standing in the Jordan River as hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came to be baptized. And I can tell you firsthand, that river is cold. I mean, really cold. Now, I've done some cold baptisms in my life. Some of you have been baptized by me in cold water. I apologize. But most of them have been climate controlled. And the bottom of the baptistry is usually like a, well, like a bathtub, but not the Jordan River. It's rocky, it's muddy, it's cold. And I can assure you that the entire time he was baptizing people, he was being bitten by fish. I can say that firsthand. Any of you have been baptized there, you may have been nibbled out a bit yourself. But John was baptizing the Jordan River, calling the people of Israel to turn back to God. He was preparing the way, the Bible says, for the person that was coming. Not just the message that was coming, but the person that was coming. The one that would bring salvation to them. And in order to experience that salvation, there was but one means. They had to repent. They had to repent. They had to turn from their own autonomy and their own selfishness and their own personal authority and self-sufficiency and surrender their lives to the coming king who was introducing a kingdom. They had to surrender to King Jesus. And the way to do that was through repentance. And that prepared the way. I'm going to ask you if you would pray with me today that God would prepare us, prepare our hearts for repentance, prepare our hearts for faith and belief, prepare our hearts for trust and action as we listen to God's word about Jesus today. Father, humble us, I pray, first of all. Show us our need. Father, we have a tendency towards towards self-sufficiency. We have a tendency, though, we often miss this in ourselves, towards pride. Father, we have an unwillingness sometimes, I think, to face honestly who we are, what we've done, where we stand before you. So, Father, today I pray that you'd humble us and show us in your word our need for Jesus. I pray, Father, you'd move us to not just understanding certain things, though understanding is certainly necessary. We want to be accurate as far as we're able to be, and we are concerned about truth and doctrine. Father, we're also concerned with obedience, behavior, with trust, with faith with walking faithfully with you. So, Father, I pray that you would motivate us, move us, 
convict us, challenge us, and empower us towards obedience today. And that in leaving here as obedient people, we would experience your blessing. So Father, make your word speak, I pray, because of your Holy Spirit. Father, stir our hearts towards action in it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage today is in the second half of Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that's the river, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you, do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now I want you to consider the scenario just for a moment. And I'm hoping, actually, you've already thought about this. If you haven't read this before this morning, even in the reading of this and the hearing of this as I read it, that you had some questions emerge. I mean, it's a very curious scene. Jesus is coming to be baptized. Now just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, perfect Son of God, infinite, absolutely holy, He who transcends time and creation itself. He who is co-equal with the Father. God in the flesh is coming to be baptized. Now John doesn't know everything there is to know about Jesus yet. But John knows a great deal. John is that Elijah-like prophet prophesied in the Old Testament who's foretelling the coming of Jesus. He's already stated that this is he. This is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And so you can understand John's reluctance. When Jesus says, I I want you to baptize me too, imagine this line of people there waiting to be baptized by John. And imagine John's query to each of them. Why do you come? What brought you here today? Are you coming to repent of sins? Imagine the discussion. I'm sure it wasn't just a, a, a mill, an assembly line of baptism. John wants to know their hearts. He wants to know if they're true and real in their confession of sin. And imagine in that line, all of a sudden, it's Jesus. John says, no, no, no. I I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But, But Jesus says, let it be so. What was John's objection? Well, first of all, John knew that he was a lesser person than Jesus. He he said of Jesus, remember in last week's message in verse 11, he said of Jesus, I'm not worthy to untie your shoes. I'm not worthy to be a servant who would bend down and remove your sandals. I'm not worthy enough to be your servant, he said. I'm, I'm lesser than you. And he also acknowledged doctrinally, theologically, that his baptism was less than Jesus' baptism. He says, I, you know, I'm baptizing people with water. My baptism is a symbolic baptism that demonstrates public repentance. These are people that recognize they're not living according to God's law. These are people that recognize that they're not fulfilling God's covenant, that they're not doing the things that God requires of them, that they're not living a unique God-centered life as His chosen people, and so they're repenting publicly and saying, send your Messiah. It's It's water. It's important, but it's symbolic. It's repentance. But Jesus is coming to do something that's internal. 
He's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. He's not simply going to rinse the outer man. He's going to bring renewal to the inner man, rebirth and life, regeneration. This is what Jesus does. You see, John has explained his baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you see where I'm going with this now. You see the conundrum we've got here? Mark's gospel says John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. How many of you have a question now about the text? The essence of his message, according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, is repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said. Repent. So everyone coming, everyone gathering around, listening to him speak, what is he telling them to do? What is he compelling them to do? What is the response to the message he's given, the sermon that he's given? What is the invitation? Repent of your sins. God's kingdom is coming. It's coming via his king. Get ready. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. And then Jesus appears. And we know that Jesus didn't need to repent. That's where you're supposed to say amen, or you're right, or that's true. Something affirmative. I'm going to say it again. We know that Jesus did not need to repent. The sinlessness of Jesus is a foundation. It's a bedrock statement of our faith. If we remove it, we lose the gospel. Jesus did not need to repent. So, why did Jesus come to be baptized? All we know in Matthew's gospel is this statement. His response to John, and it was sufficient for John to relent, to change his mind and comply. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now I think sometimes when we read that, our immediate response to it, our interpretation of it is, well, Jesus in his perfect righteousness had to obey every command, every law. And if he disobeyed any law or this disobeyed any command, then he couldn't be righteous. But then that sort of begs the question, where is the command that Jesus would have been obeying to be baptized? Because actually the command that you and I obey, and I'll talk about this at the very end, to be baptized is a command that Jesus gave. It's during Jesus' life and ministry, not prior to. I think it means more than just Jesus crossing every T and dotting every I. When Jesus says He came to fulfill all righteousness, he wasn't talking about his own. He wasn't talking about, I'm doing this to make sure that I have no missteps, that I miss no marks along the way, that I violate no command, no law. This wasn't simply about his righteousness. What Jesus is putting on display in this moment is our need for righteousness. It is Jesus identifying with the people then and the people after them and the people now in their need for righteousness. Jesus in His coming to earth, Jesus in His taking on flesh, becoming fully human, Jesus in living an ordinary life, Jesus in facing temptation, Jesus in suffering and dying, Jesus in all those things is identifying with us. He's saying, I will be as they are. I will submit myself to their struggles. 
I will humble myself and I will become as one of them and I will identify myself in all of their needs and I will fulfill all righteousness, not so that I can be saved, but so that they can be saved. Let me explain this to you in what may seem like at first on the surface a bit just sort of technically theological, but I hope you'll see how it knots, how it weaves together Old and New Testament and the themes of Christ and gives us a richer understanding and a deeper appreciation for what Jesus did for us. First of all, Jesus comes in the New Testament as the second Adam, and he comes to fulfill the things the second Adam failed at. He succeeds where Adam failed. We see the scripture most developed by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have the interpretation of this. But Jesus comes in now as the new and better Adam. What does that mean for us? Well, essentially, Scripture separates everyone who's ever lived and ever will live into two groups, two family groups. They're the sons and daughters of Adam and the sons and daughters of Jesus. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. We know Adam is the first man. And if you're familiar with the story of Genesis and how it unfolds rather quickly, even though he was placed in a veritable paradise, everything that he could ever desire or need at his disposal and the very presence of God with him like a friend that he could converse with and walk with in the cool of the day and enjoy the company of. With everything there, it doesn't take very long for temptation to enter in and sin follows. When Adam sinned, he brought sin and all of its effects into the world. And not only did he introduce sin into the world, he left a lineage of sin for everyone that followed after him. We see references to this peppered throughout Scripture. Here's one from the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, describing people in general. And so Hosea is speaking to the sins of Israel. He says, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Each of us, outside of Christ, could describe ourselves in those same two words, like Adam. Like Adam. Like Adam, we faced temptation and we failed. Like Adam, we chose sin over obedience to God. Uh, like Adam, we chose the pursuit of our own desires and pleasures over the pleasures of God for us. Like Adam, we chose what we could see and touch and feel, what we thought we wanted over what God told us was best for us. Like Adam, we have all sinned. And like Adam, we've all felt the effects of sin, and we still feel it today. And like Adam, we all face judgment for sin, which is he told him in the garden. As soon as you do this, as soon as you sin in this way, you shall surely die. And we see that reiterated again and again and again throughout the New Testament, profoundly in Romans chapter 3, that the wage of sin is death. In Adam. That's the default mode for everybody. When you were born into this world, guess what? You were born in Adam. That's your nature. That's your heritage. That's your lineage. And we don't simply call ourselves sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We can thank Adam for that. But what about Christ? Christ comes in as a new and better Adam, a new and better representative, a new and better head for us. Consider Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And again, by the way, I don't want to go too far down this uh, path. I think we know these truths, but I don't want to miss anything today. We're not simply guilty because Adam sinned. We're guilty because we sin. We sin like Adam. 
The effects of that are seen in verse 15. If many die through one man's trespass, it's the effect of sin over many. But what about Jesus? Much more has the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. If Adam brings death for all who do nothing but remain in Adam, what does Jesus offer for those who put their faith and trust in him? He gives grace. And what does grace give? Grace gives life and life eternal. Look at verses 17 and following. For if by because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the Scriptures teach us that to regain for us what Adam lost on our our behalf, Adam, our representative head, to regain what he lost for us, Christ has to be perfectly righteous. He's everything that Adam wasn't for our sake. We were in Adam. But if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, if you humble yourself and recognize your need for Him and trust Him, then you're in Christ. And instead of the heritage, the inheritance of sinfulness, you have the heritage and the inheritance of righteousness. And that's because of Christ. He is our second Adam, the new and better Adam. So today, that's your condition. You're either still in Adam, that's the default mode of humanity, or you're in Christ. That's the mode of grace given to us solely by Jesus. But it's more than just Adam, and it's more than just individuals. Jesus is also revealing in the Gospel of Matthew, the Scriptures revealing Jesus as the true and better Israel. He is the true and better Israel. He's keeping perfect covenant with God, unlike Israel who failed at so many points. And there's so many parallels Many of you have seen these, I'm sure, as you've been reading through early in the year. You've been reading through the Gospel of of Matthew, and you remember some of the stories of Genesis and Exodus, and you see the very obvious parallels of Jesus and Israel. And it's intentional. It's not coincidental. It's showing us that God's Son, as He described Israel in saving them, is foreshadowing His true Son, Jesus, who would be a Savior for the world, as Israel was to represent Him among the nations, bring Him glory, and point others to Him, they failed and failed and failed. But Jesus will be the perfect representative, saving the nations. Consider some of these these parallels. You remember that Jesus went down into Egypt? He comes out of Egypt, and now He passes through the waters. And what happens next in chapter 4 of Matthew? He faces temptation. Where? Where? In the wilderness, he goes down into Egypt and returns. He goes through the waters. He goes into the wilderness where he is tested. Consider some of the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 2. This is Jesus going down into Egypt. When they had departed, an angel of the Lord, they departed. That's the wise men who were seeking Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take his child, mother, flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He arose, he took his child, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill this prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
at the end of a series of temptations, what does Jesus say? What is his response? Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Does that phrase, does that statement sound any at all familiar to you? He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. He's quoting the challenge made to the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. Why are you struggling this way? Why have you not found your way to the promised land yet? Why are you facing such difficulties? Until you learn this lesson, worship the Lord your God only, and Him only shall you serve. And Jesus is the satisfaction of all of these things. Now compare these to Israel. Israel goes down into Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. The people lived in Egypt 430 years, Exodus 12, 40 says. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This was God's plan. He brought them out. He delivered them. What happened as He brought them out of Egypt? They go through the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14. Again, listen to the description. Exodus 14, verse 10. Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Imagine, they have just fled Egypt, and now the armies of Egypt pursue them until they're up against the water. They've got nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and it looks hopeless. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, they were seriously passive-aggressive. There are no graves there? You have to kill us here? What have you done in bringing us out? Is it not that we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Let me add an aside here. This is not a message per se about Exodus 14. It's better to die serving the living God than to live a long, long life serving all the false gods of this world. And they didn't know that. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. He uses a word there to describe what's about to take place as they go through this water. What was it? Salvation. This is going to be a picture of my salvation for you. Now, in the New Testament, how do we interpret what happened there spiritually, theologically? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, Paul writes. Our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. He's talking about this. He's talking about this event, the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He's saying that this event was a baptism into the covenant that God had made for them, that God had promised to them. This was a necessary transition out of this old world and this old life into the new. It was a picture, a foreshadowing of baptism. As he takes them through the waters, where do they go next? They go into the wilderness, Exodus chapter 16. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven from you, and the people shall go out and gather a portion, a day's portion every day. Why? That I may, what? Test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. Do you see the parallels? So he does for Israel. Brings them up out of Egypt. 
passes them through the water, sends them into the wilderness to be tested, to see if they're going to be faithful to him. Are they faithful? No. Again and again and again, no matter what God does for them, no matter how good he is to them, no matter how powerful he demonstrates himself on their behalf, no matter how much of the covenant he displays his power to keep for their sake, they continue to rebel against him. They failed every test. But unlike Israel, Jesus passes every test. He passes every test. He is the satisfaction of the demands of God. He is perfect righteousness for our sake. We also see in the baptism of Jesus this revelation of a passage that we covered together several, uh, several weeks ago, Isaiah chapter 42. One of the great prophetic passages about the coming of Christ. What is he coming for? What is he coming to do? Is he simply coming to be a good teacher? Is he coming to be a political revolutionary? Is he coming to be a moral example for you to follow the best that you can? Or is he coming to do something far greater, far more significant, something that could only be accomplished by him for our sake? Isaiah 42 tells us it's the latter. Jesus is the revealed suffering servant. He's the Son of God. He's the promised one of Isaiah 42 in Psalm 2-7. Remember Isaiah 42? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The fulfillment of Isaiah 42 is now seen vividly in his baptism. In his baptism, we see our Trinitarian God, not God operating in three different modes, God in three persons, simultaneously present. The voice of the Father speaks, the presence of the Holy Spirit seen while the very Son of God is being inaugurated, the Messiah of the world, the suffering servant who comes to take away our sins. Psalm 2-7, I'll tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. At Jesus' baptism, it's not simply about Jesus checking off the boxes, It's about Jesus being publicly revealed, publicly identified as the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the suffering servant who submits to the Father's will for the sake of those he came to save. That is why he is called the suffering servant. He's coming to serve God's holiness, the demands of God's holiness, and he's coming to serve the needs, the demands of our sinfulness. And he humbles himself to that purpose. He comes to save us. He identifies with us. Jesus didn't become the Son of God when he was baptized. There are some cults that teach that. There are some false religions that teach he became the Son of God at this point. Now what's happening here is he's being publicly revealed as such. Make no mistake, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He wants the world to know. Likewise, he didn't receive the Holy Spirit upon his baptism. There can be no separation in the perfect unity of the Godhead. That's why we call it a triunity, the Trinity. He didn't receive the Holy Spirit. What's happening here at his baptism is he's he's being empowered and equipped by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that reference again and again through his ministry, those miracles he does. By the power, by the work of the Holy Spirit, he's being empowered and equipped for ministry. And by the way, The same Spirit resides in all those who are in Christ. 
The same Spirit, the same power provided by the same Holy Spirit is given to us at our salvation. And while this is a bit of an aside, I often pray for people prior to them being baptized that in some way, some special way in their communion with the Father and His communion with them and their sense of closeness as they enter into a covenant with Him through baptism, that they also would experience that sort of pleasure. I've often prayed for people. I, I pray that in some way in your spirit, you'll sense the pleasure of God who looks on you and is well-pleased with you. Well-pleased with your statement of faith. Well-pleased with your act of obedience. Well-pleased with your humble reception of salvation and your declaration of such in baptism. This is what, what Jesus did. But ultimately, if we want to answer the question of Jesus' baptism, if we want to understand it rightly, we can't separate what Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry from what Jesus did near the very end of his ministry. You can't rightly understand baptism if you disconnect it from crucifixion. The, the baptism of Jesus is best understood and rightly understood only in light of his crucifixion. You see, remember this about Jesus. When I said it's our righteousness that he came to fulfill, it was the righteous demands of God that he came to satisfy. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.21 these words, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In baptism, Jesus identifies with all of us. He identifies with all of fallen Israel. He identifies with all of fallen humanity. If you're asking technically... Did Jesus need to be baptized? The, the technical answer, the theological answer is no. He didn't need to be baptized. He had no sin. But the same question would apply if you asked, did Jesus need to be crucified? Because crucifixion is the punishment for sin. No, Jesus didn't need to be crucified. He had no sin. He was baptized and he was crucified because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. His baptism is an act of humility. Jesus, though sinless, consents to be counted as if He were sinful alongside of us and for us. If you're flummoxed by Jesus getting baptized, you should be even more flummoxed by Jesus being crucified. Because a perfect, sinless Son of God, co-creator of humanity, and all that exists, all of creation. Our final judge, our great and coming king, was present in both places. Philippians 2.8 Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How far would Jesus stoop to save us? How far would the expression or the application of his obedience go? How far would it take him? All the way to death. All the way to death. For our sake, he did that. So let me ask you this question. Why then should you be baptized? Or another way of asking this question is, what then hath the baptism of Jesus to do with me and you? Why should we be baptized? Why don't we do this very simply? And I borrow some thoughts from a from a powerful message I heard from Dr. John MacArthur. 
So if you recognize some similar points, I'm I'm co-opting a few. First of all, God commands it. Baptism is commanded for us. When, When the gospel was going out, when the first apostles were sent out and they were preaching, baptism was always part and parcel of the response they were challenging people to make to the good news they heard. So the gospel is a declaration of truth. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what God has done for sinners. This is what God has done for those who are hopeless in their sins. This is what God has done for all of us who are in Adam. He has sent Christ, the new and better Adam. This is good news. What should you do with that good news? Repent, believe, and be baptized. Peter said to them in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to be careful sometimes that we don't cross over into things that Scripture doesn't say, and believe things Scripture doesn't require of us. But also at the same time, we have to be careful we don't leave behind certain things that, Chris, that Scripture actually demands of us. For instance, we as Baptists, we place a great deal of emphasis on baptism. But sometimes, in fact I would say too often, far too often, we separate it from this moment of salvation, this response to God's gospel and this reception of God's grace, getting saved, and then putting off this baptism until some future date, even theoretically making it optional. The New Testament knew nothing of that. It knew nothing of that. Every single person who hears the gospel under the ministry of the church and the apostles repents. Everyone who repents and believes gets baptized. Now, I know we often like to look to these exception clauses, and we make these exception clauses the norm. Oh, what about the man on the cross? Listen, it would be foolish indeed to build your understanding of Scripture off of the extreme and the rare and making it the norm. The man on the cross, for obvious reasons, beside Jesus, had no opportunity to be baptized. Had he been able to be baptized, I would venture to say with great certainty he surely would have been. But the model that we see consistently applied throughout Scripture, so much so that when you read these texts in the New Testament, it seems as if sometimes he's saying, baptism saves you. No, what he's saying is, baptism is a public confession of that which saves you so much to such a degree, how could you possibly separate it from your salvation itself? It's such an identifier of your salvation, how could it be separated? In his helpful book on baptism called Going Public, Bobby Jameson says this, In the New Testament, all Christians were baptized, and all the evidence we have points to people being baptized as soon as they embrace the gospel. After trusting Christ, baptism is the first thing a believer does. It's how faith shows itself before God, the church, and the world. Baptism is where faith goes public. In fact, in the early early, uh, New Testament period, you would rightly think that someone who refuses to be baptized refuses to be identified with Christ. And you might have legitimate cause to question the authenticity of their salvation. Now, for us to be baptized costs us very little, if anything. Maybe a bit of cold water or a a bit of um, humility before a congregation of people. But there are places in the world today where baptism would cost you potentially everything. I remember 
when Tommy and I were in India doing some pastor conferences, and Tommy, you may remember this, in one of those sessions, which was a bit of a mixed bag when I opened myself up to any questions from the, from the group, but one of them I got was, what do you make of believers here who won't get baptized? Now, I have to, I have to walk on this gently because I'm from a cultural Christian nation, by and large. Again, baptism will cost you nothing politically, socially, etc. But I'm talking about a Hindu-dominant nation where going public with Jesus is a whole different deal than a private, personal experience. It might cost you relationships with family. You might be disowned. It might cost you the ability to do business. It might cost you physical violence and even your life itself. So I understand this dynamic. So what I say to them is, I, this is easy for me to say, but what I say is not based on personal opinion or personal experience. I have to say based on what I think the Scriptures require of us. I would rather be faithful to God unto death than unfaithful to God unto life. And if that's a choice I have to make, I understand the profound difficulty that entails. But if I have to stand before God saying, I denied you because I was afraid of what it would cost me to follow you, well, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person that's traipsing on that thin line. If you, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. So I would say to that question, brothers, I would question the authenticity of the salvation of anyone who refuses baptism. Even here. Even here. Stand up and be counted. See, God commands it. Number two, it's the public confession of every true believer. Every true believer in their baptism is declaring the truth of the gospel and the effect of the gospel. Sometimes, particularly when people are younger or people are shy, um, they're hesitant to speak publicly when they're baptized. Now, our preference always is to have some, someone share their testimony because I want you to hear it. I want whoever is here to hear it. I don't know who that might speak to. I don't know whose situation may be akin to that one. I don't know who that might motivate or challenge, but I want people, I want you to know, just as we know when we're baptizing them, we have heard their salvation story. We affirm for you that they are one of us, they're entering into this covenant family with us. <coughs> I want you to hear that. Sometimes that's a little bit difficult when you're young and and it's very hard to speak in front of a crowd, so sometimes people write that out. But even when the words aren't spoken, there is a public declaration being made. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Galatians 3.27 says, as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So in baptism, we're telling the story of what Jesus has done for us. Look, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus who lived. He lived sinlessly, perfectly for my sake. But he was crucified and buried. But he's not a martyr. He didn't simply die. He was raised for our justification in life. This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus who lived and died and lives again for my sake. But it's also a picture of me. Because the old me is now dead and buried. Because I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. And I reemerge now with this new life that He's given me to walk in a life that pleases Him. It's a public confession of the gospel. Number three, it displays the very crux of our faith. The center of what we believe. Again, speaking to that point of Jesus on display and the effects of the gospel in my life on display, consider Romans chapter 6. 
Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. It's a picture of the death of Jesus. In order that just as Jesus Christ was raised by the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, a declaration of Jesus and what Jesus has done to me. This is not a perfect person emerging, but it's not the same person. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, when John baptized people, he baptized people who were coming repentant over their sin. When Jesus baptized people, he baptized people who were repentant over their sin and now empowered them and set them free from the power of that sin. Now they're free of it to live a new life. And baptism, inaugurated by Jesus in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, is commanded by Jesus at the end. This is our commission. We tell others the good news of Jesus. We challenge others to a right response to that good news of Jesus. Faith, repentance, baptism, because it's the commission that Jesus gave us as Christians. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's your response today? The question I ask of you today is, who should be baptized? Who in this room should be baptized? If you've not been baptized yet, and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in Him, you're trusting Him wholly, completely, and only for your salvation. You're already a believer. You should be baptized. You should not hesitate. In fact, we'll do this next week. Next week, if that's you, we'll have a baptistry set up right there. And we will baptize you if that's your testimony. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I have not Follow through in baptism, but I need to, I want to. I'm repenting of that, and I want to affirm my commitment to Christ in baptism. If that's you, you need to be baptized, and we'll do it next week for you. Maybe you came into this room not a believer yet, and you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus today. You're repenting of your sins. God, I need to be forgiven. I don't want to stand before a perfect and holy God and pretend that I'm anything close, that I'm anything deserving of Him. In my repentance, I want to express my faith in Jesus. I want to be baptized. If you are at the end of yourself and are willing to grasp hold of Him completely and only Him, then I invite you to be baptized. And if that's you, if that describes you today, I'm, I'm turning to Jesus today. I, I want to repent. I want to I demonstrate my faith in Him. I want to become a Christian. I want to be baptized. Then this invitation I'm about to offer is for you. There will be a few of our pastoral staff standing here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to give biblical counsel to you. We'd love to talk to you about that commitment to follow Christ in baptism. And if that's you, we want to baptize you just as well. We want you to come. Would you pray with me? Father, may we be obedient to you today. May we act decisively as a statement of faith. Faith not feeling, but faith shown in obedience. May we do that which is pleasing to you. And Father, those who act in obedience and faith today, I pray they would feel your good pleasure in that obedience. Father, stir our hearts. Save some today. Turn some hearts towards you today, Father. I pray that you convict of sin. Reveal 
your solution to our great need, the righteousness of Christ, the goodness that you've given us in Jesus who lived for us, died for our sake, is raised for our sake, is coming again for us. I pray that, Father, people would turn in faith to you through Jesus today. Save me. Save me based on what Jesus has done. And as a statement of that faith, would obediently be baptized. Father, it may require some humbling on the part of some, but I pray that there are some in this room who have been Christians for a while, and maybe most people in this room that know them already identify them as Christians and would probably assume they've been baptized. Father, I pray that they would be baptized, that they would choose obediently to be baptized. And Father, just perhaps if there's a small subset of people in this room who were baptized long ago but did not have faith in Jesus, did not understand that faith in Jesus, maybe did so at the request of others, maybe they did so following suit with friends or peers, or, but only, only later did they come to place their faith and trust in you. Father, I, I pray that you would move their hearts towards obedient baptism as a response of their commitment to follow you, their covenant relationship they have with you. So, Father, store our hearts towards obedience. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, our perfect righteousness. That's our hope. That's where we stand. That's our confidence. That's our assurance. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.